from the National Preacher from the year 1829, The Nature and Means of Growth in Grace by Archibald Alexander, professor in the Theological Seminary at Princeton, New Jersey. 2 Peter 3, verse 18, Grow in Grace. The word grace is of frequent occurrence and high and interesting import in the sacred scriptures. In the great concern of man's salvation, no other word has a richer meaning. But while the general idea of the term is everywhere retained, there are several shades of difference in the signification that is is used in different passages of the sacred text. Its primary and more usual sense is a favor of God to sinners, or in other words, a love and mercy of God. In this acceptation, grace is a fountain of life, the source of salvation, to which all other blessings may be traced as to their first cause. Thus Paul, who abounds in the use of this word, in his epistle to the Ephesians says, having predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. And again, by grace are you saved, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. But as the gospel is a channel through which this fountain pours forth its exuberant streams, it is called not only the gospel of the grace of God, but grace itself. And where it is said, We then as workers together with him beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. And also in the following text, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, in both which passages the least attention to the context will show that by the grace of God is meant the gospel. And as the gospel is rendered effectual to the salvation of sinners, only by the aid of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, his influence on the heart have also received the name of grace is, My grace is sufficient for thee. By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. But in our text, the word grace has a meaning somewhat different from what it has in any of the passages which have been cited. Christians are here exhorted to grow in grace, which would not be a practicable thing in any of the senses of the word already given. By grace here, we must understand the principle of new life implanted in regeneration, a sense of the word much in use among us, but rather unusual in the scriptures. When the apostle exhorts Christians to grow in grace, it is the same as if he had said increase in holiness or advance in piety. And it would not be easy to select a subject of greater importance to all professors of religion. If comfort and usefulness here and the degree of our felicity and glory in heaven will be proportioned to our growth and grace, then the subject possesses an intrinsic importance which should command the attention and deeply interest the feelings of all who hear me. What I propose then is, one, to explain the nature of growth in grace, and to inquire by what means growth in grace may be promoted. It is evidently implied in the exhortation that the persons addressed were the subjects of grace, for that which has no existence cannot increase. But grace is a plant which does not grow in nature's garden. It is of a heavenly origin, 
When there is no growth and grace, there is no spiritual life. We have taken it for granted that among the regenerate, at the moment of their conversion, there is a difference in the vigor of the principle of spiritual life, analogous to what we observe in the natural world. And no doubt the analogy holds as it relates to growth. As some children who are weak and sickly in the first days of their existence become healthy and strong, and greatly outgrow others who commence life with far greater advantages, so it is with the new man. Some who enter on the spiritual life with a weak and wavering faith by the blessing of God and a diligent use of means far outstrip others who in the beginning were greatly before them. It is often observed that there are professors who never appear to grow in grace, but rather decline perpetually until they become in spirit and conduct entirely conformed to the world from whence they profess to come out. The result in regard to them is one of two things. They either retain their standing in the church and become dead formalists, having a name to live while they are dead, a form of godliness, while they deny the power thereof, or they renounce their profession and abandon their connection with the church, and openly take their stand with the enemies of Christ, and not infrequently go beyond them in all daring impiety. Of all such we may confidently say they were not of us, or undoubtedly they would have continued with us. But of such I mean not now to speak, further as the case of backsliders will be considered hereafter." That growth in grace is gradual and progressive is very evident from Scripture, as in all those passages where believers are exhorted to mortify sin and crucify the flesh, to increase and abound in all the exercises of piety and good works. One text on the subject will be sufficient. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this passage furnishes us with information of the origin and nature of this growth. It is knowledge, even the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Just so far as any soul increases in spiritual knowledge, in the same degree it grows in grace. Persons may advance rapidly in other kinds of knowledge, and yet make no advances in piety, but the contrary. They may even have their minds filled with correct theoretical knowledge of divine truth, and yet its effect may not be to humble, but to puff up. Many an accurate and profound theologian has lived and died without a ray of saving light. The natural man, however gifted with talent or enriched with speculative knowledge, has no spiritual discernment. After all his acquisitions, he is destitute of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but it should not be forgotten that divine illumination is not independent of the word, but accompanies it. Those Christians, therefore, who are most diligent in attending upon the word in public and private will be most likely to make progress in piety. Young converts are prone to depend too much on their joyful frames, and they love high excitement in their devotional exercises. But their heavenly Father cures them of this folly by leaving them for a season to walk in darkness and struggle with their own corruptions. When most sorely pressed and discouraged, however, he strengthens them with might in the inner man. He enables them to stand firmly against temptation, or if they slide, he quickly restores them, and by such exercises they become much more sensible of their entire dependence than they were at first. They learn to be in the fear of the Lord all the day long, to distrust entirely their own wisdom and strength, and to rely for all needed aid on the grace of Christ Jesus. 
Such a soul will not readily believe that it is growing in grace, but to be emptied of self-dependence and to know that we need aid for every duty and even for every good thought is an important step in our progress in piety. The flowers may have disappeared from the plant of grace, and even the leaves may have fallen off, and wintry blasts may have shaken it, but it now is striking its roots deeper and becoming every day stronger to endure the rugged storm. One circumstance that attends the growth of a real Christian in grace, which renders it exceedingly difficult for him to know the fact upon a superficial view of his case, and that is the clearer and deeper insight which he obtains into the evils of his own heart. Now this is one of the best evidences of growth, but the first conclusion is apt to be, I am growing worse every day. I see innumerable evils springing up within me, which I never saw before. This person may be compared to one shut up in a dark room where he is surrounded by many loathsome objects. If a single ray of light be let into the room, he sees the more prominent objects. But if the light gradually increases, he sees more and more of the filth by which he has been surrounded. It was there before, but he didn't perceive it. His increased knowledge of the fact is a sure evidence of increasing light. Hypocrites often learn a talk by road of the wickedness of their hearts, but go to them and seriously accuse them of indulging secret pride or envy or covetousness or any other heart sins, and they will be offended. Their confessions of sin are only intended to raise them in the opinion of others as truly humble persons, and not that they should believe that corruption abounds within them. Growth and grace is evinced by a more habitual vigilance against besetting sins and temptations, and by a greater self-denial in regard to personal indulgence. A growing conscientiousness in regard to what may be called the minor duties is also a good sign. The counterfeit of this is a scrupulous conscience which sometimes haggles at the most innocent gratifications and has led some to hesitate about taking their daily food. Increasing spiritual mindedness is a sure evidence of progress and piety, and this will always be accompanied by deadness to the world. Continued aspirations to God in the house and by the way, and lying down and rising up in company and in solitude, indicate the indwelling of the Holy Spirit by whose agency all progress and sanctification is made. A victory over besetting sins by which a person was frequently led away shows an increased vigor in the renewed principle. Increasing solicitude for the salvation of men and sorrow on account of their sinful and miserable condition and a disposition tenderly to warn sinners of their danger evince a growing state of piety. It is also a strong evidence of growth in grace when you can bear injuries and provocations with meekness and when you can from the heart desire the temporal and eternal welfare of your bitterest enemies. An entire and confident reliance on the promises and providence of God, however dark may be your horizon or however many difficulties environ you, is a sign that you have learned to live by faith. And humble contentment with your condition, though it be one of poverty and obscurity, shows that you have profited by sitting at the feet of Jesus. Diligence in the duties of our calling with a view to the glory of God is not an evidence to be despised.
Indeed, there is no surer standard of spiritual growth than a habit of aiming at the glory of God in everything. That mind which is studied to the main end gives us good evidence of being touched by divine grace, as the tendency of the needle to the pole proves that it has been touched by the magnet. Increasing love to the brethren is a sure sign of growth, for his brotherly love is a proof of the existence of grace. So exercising brotherly love is a vigor in the divine life. This love, when pure, is not confined within those limits which party spirit circumscribes, but overleaping all the barriers of sects and denominations, it embraces the disciples of Christ wherever it finds them. A healthy state of piety is always a growing state. That child which grows not at all must be sickly. If we would enjoy spiritual comfort, we must be in a thriving condition. None enjoy the pleasures of bodily health but they who are in health. If we would be useful to the church and the world, we must be growing Christians. If we would live in daily preparation for our change, we must endeavor to grow in grace daily. The Aged Saint Laden with the fruits of righteousness is like a shock of corn fully ripe, which is ready for the garner, or like a mature fruit which gradually loosens its hold of the tree until at last it gently falls off. Thus the aged mature Christian departs in peace. As growth and grace is gradual and the progress from day to day imperceptible, we should aim to do something in this work every day. We should die daily to sin and live to righteousness. Sometimes the children of God grow faster when in the fiery furnace and elsewhere. As metals are purified by being cast into the fire, so saints have their dross consumed and their evidence is brightened by being cast into the furnace of affliction. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which shall try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice because the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, shall be found to praise and honor and glory. We shall here present some practical directions how to grow in grace or make progress in piety. First, Set it down as a certainty that this object will never be attained without vigorous, continued effort, and it must not only be desired and sought, but must be considered more important than all other pursuits, and be pursued in preference to everything which claims your attention. Number two, while you determine to be assiduous in the use of the appointed means of sanctification, you must have it deeply fixed in your mind that nothing can be effected in this work without the aid of the divine spirit. Paul may plant and Apollos water, but it is God that gives the increase. The direction of the old divines is good. Use the means as vigorously as if you were to be saved by your own efforts, and yet trust as entirely to the grace of God as if you made use of no means whatever. Be much in the perusal of the Holy Scriptures, and strive to obtain clear and consistent views of the plan of redemption. Learn to contemplate the truth in its true nature, simply, devoutly, and long at a time, that you may receive on your soul the impression which it is calculated to make. Avoid curious and abstruse speculations respecting things unrevealed, and do not indulge a spirit of controversy. 
Many lose the benefit of the good impression which the truth is calculated to make because they do not view it simply in its own nature, but is related to some dispute or is bearing on some other point. As when a man would receive the genuine impression which a beautiful landscape is adapted to make, he must not be turned aside by minute inquiries respecting the botanical character of the plants, the value of the timber, or the fertility of the soil, but he must place his mind in the attitude of receiving the impression which the combined view of the objects before him will naturally produce on the taste. In such cases, the effect is not produced by any exertion of the intellect. All such active striving is unfavorable except in bringing the mind to its proper state. When the impression is most perfect, we feel as if we were mere passive recipients of the effect. To this there is a striking analogy in the way in which the mind is impressed with divine truth. It is not the critic, the speculative or polemic theologian who is most likely to receive the right impression, but the humble, simple-hearted, contemplative Christian. It is necessary to study the scriptures critically and defend the truth against opposers, but the most learned critic and the most profound theologian must learn to sit at the feet of Jesus in the spirit of a child, or they are not likely to be edified by their studies. Number four, pray constantly and fervently for the influences of the Holy Spirit. No blessing is so particularly and emphatically promised in answer to prayer as this. And if you would receive this divine gift to be in you as a well of water springing up to everlasting life, you must not only pray, but you must watch against everything in your heart or life which has a tendency to grieve the Spirit of God. Of what account is it to pray if you indulge evil thoughts and imaginations almost without control, or if you give way to the evil passions of anger, envy, pride, and avarice, or bridle not your tongue from evil speaking? Learn to be conscientious, that is, obey the dictates of your conscience uniformly. Many are conscientious in some things and not in others. They listen to the monitor within when he directs to important duties, but in smaller manners they often disregard the voice of conscience and follow present inclination. Such cannot grow in grace. Number five, take more time for the duties of the closet and for looking into the state of your soul. Redeem an hour daily from sleep if you cannot obtain it otherwise. And as the soul's concerns are apt to get out of order, and more time is needed for thorough self-examination than an hour a day, set apart, not periodically, but as your necessities require days of fasting and humiliation before God. On these occasions, deal faithfully with yourself. Be in earnest to search out all your secret sins and to repent of them. Renew your covenant with God and form holy resolutions of amendment in the strength of divine grace. And if you find upon examination that you have been living in any sinful indulgence, probe the festering wound to the core and confess your fault before God. And do not rest until you have had an application of the blood of sprinkling. You need not ask why you do not grow while there is such an ulcer within you. Here it is to be feared as the root of the evil, since indulged or not thoroughly repented of and forsaken, or the conscience has not been purged effectually and the wound still festers. Come to the fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Bring your case to the great physician and place it in his hands.
Number six, cultivate and exercise brotherly love more than you have been accustomed to do. Christ is displeased with many of his professed followers because they are so cold and indifferent to his members on earth, and because they do so little to comfort and encourage them, and with some because they are a stumbling block to the weak of the flock, their conversation and conduct not being edifying but the contrary. Perhaps these disciples are poor and in the lower walks of life, and therefore you overlook them as beneath you. And thus you would have treated Christ himself had you lived in his time, for he took a station among the poor and afflicted, and he will resent the neglect of his poor saints with more displeasure than he would of the rich. Perhaps they do not belong to your party or sect, and you are only concerned to build up your own denomination. Remember how Christ condescended to treat the sinful woman of Samaria and the poor woman of Canaan, and remember what account he has given of the last judgment when he will assume to himself all that has been done or neglected to be done to his humble followers. There should be more Christian conversation and friendly intercourse between the followers of Christ. In former days, they that feared the Lord spake often one unto another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written for them that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. Number seven, if you are in good earnest to make greater progress in piety, you must do more than you have done for the promotion of God's glory and of Christ's kingdom on earth. You must enter with lively or deeper feeling into all the plans which the church has adopted to advance these objects. You must give more than you have done. It is a shame to think how small a portion of their gains some professors devote to the Lord. Instead of being a tithe, it is hardly equal to the single sheaf of first fruits. If you have nothing to give, labor to get something. Sit up at night and try to make something for Christ as need of it. Sell a corner of your land and throw the money into the treasury of the Lord. In primitive times, many sold houses and lands and laid the whole at the apostles' feet. Do not be afraid of making yourselves poor by giving to the Lord or to his poor. His word is better than any bond, and he says, I will repay it. Cast your bread on the waters, and after many days you will find it again. Send the Bible, send missionaries, send tracts to the perishing heathen. Number eight, practice self-denial every day. Lay a wholesome restraint upon your appetites. Be not conformed to this world. Let your dress, your house, your furniture be plain and simple as becomes a Christian. Avoid vain parade and show in everything. Govern your family with discretion. Forgive and pray for your enemies. Have little to do with party politics. Carry on your business on sober judicious principles. Keep clear of speculation and surety ships. Leave peaceably with all men as much as in you lies. Be much in ejaculatory prayer. Keep your heart with all diligence. Try to turn to spiritual profit every event which occurs and be fervently thankful for all mercies. Number nine, for your more rapid growth in grace. Some of you will be cast into the furnace of affliction, sickness, bereavement, bad conduct of children and relatives. Loss of property or of reputation may come upon you unexpectedly and press heavily on you. In these trying circumstances, exercise patience and fortitude. Be more solicitous to have the affliction sanctified than removed. Glorify God while in the fire of adversity. That faith which is most tried is commonly most pure and precious. Learn from Christ how you ought to suffer. 
Let perfect submission to the will of God be aimed at. Never indulge a murmuring or discontented spirit. Repose with confidence on the promises. Commit all your cares to God. Make known your request to Him by prayer and supplication. Let go your too eager grasp of the world. Become familiar with death and the grave. Wait patiently until your change comes, but desire not to live a day longer than may be for the glory of God. It would seem desirable to know, as precisely as we can, the reasons why Christians commonly are of so little a stature and of such feeble strength in their Christianity. When persons are truly converted, they always are sincerely desirous to make rapid progress in piety, and there are not lacking exceeding great and gracious promises of aid to encourage them to go forward with alacrity. Why, then, is so little advancement made? Are there not some practical mistakes very commonly entertained which are the cause of the slowness of growth? I think there are, and will endeavor to specify some of them. And first, there is a defect in our belief of the freeness of divine grace. To exercise unshaken confidence in the doctrine of a gratuitous pardon is one of the most difficult things in the world, and to preach this doctrine fully without verging towards antinomianism is no easy task, and is therefore seldom done. But Christians cannot but be lean and feeble when deprived of their proper nutriment. It is by faith that the spiritual life is made to grow, and a doctrine of free grace without any mixture of human merit is the only true object of faith. Christians are too much inclined to depend on themselves and not to derive their life entirely from Christ. There is a spurious legal religion which may flourish without the practical belief in the absolute freeness of divine grace, but it possesses none of the characteristics of the Christian's life. It is found to exist in the rankest growth and systems of religion which are utterly false. But even when the true doctrine is acknowledged in theory, often it is not practically felt and acted on. The new convert lives upon his frames rather than on Christ, and the older Christian still is found struggling in his own strength and failing in his expectations expectations of success. He becomes discouraged first, and then he sinks into a gloomy despondency, or becomes in a measure careless, and then the spirit of the world comes in with resistless force. Here I am persuaded is the root of the evil, and until religious teachers inculcate clearly, fully, and practically the grace of God as manifested in the gospel, we shall not have vigorous growth of piety among professing Christians."